Hello, please let me see your ticket stubs for the Double Edge Double Bill. This week it's Michelle Pfeiffer in Dangerous Grease 2. week, Adam Thomas and Thomas Mariani will come to the table to discuss the randomly selected yin and yang of a double feature. Then, both will have to pick a number between 1 and 10 in order to seal their fates for the next episode. One will have two good movies, the other two bad ones. Let the chaos begin. Uh, I am Thomas Mariani, and unfortunately, uh, Adam is still on his sabbatical, uh, so he will not be joining us this week. But you know what? That's fine, because I really need a different kind of co-host in my life. I need a cool rider of a co-host. And of course, I have that now with... Uh, a returning guest for the show, Mr. Chris Lucentonio. Chris, welcome back to the show. Coming in on your bike, just completely different looking. Like, I, I had to, like, double check with you for a second, because you're wearing, like, a leather jacket and a bike helmet, and I like, instantaneously couldn't tell you were the same person. Oh, should I take the goggles off? Oh, maybe, yeah, go ahead. Oh my god, it's him! I knew it! <laughs> I, I was able to really flatten my British accent uh, for you, so you had no idea, but I can see that you were incredibly charmed. Very. I mean, honestly, quite charmed. Uh, but welcome back, Chris, to the show. Um, I'm inviting you on here for this week. Uh, we're doing an episode in honor of um, Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania is coming out, which uh, I'm sure, I don't know, do you have any love left for the Marvels at all, or is that not really interesting in you at all? The real question was, is, uh, did I have any to begin with? But uh, what was there has been thoroughly hammered out of me by, by the releasing model that they have glommed onto in recent years. And uh, when you said in honor of Ant-Man and Wasp, Quantumania, I'm like, in honor? Heavy quotation marks around there, that there. honor. You, you I, I would say, to say sure, that. Yes. <laughs> yes, yes. But at least the one of the honorifics is one of the people who's uh, getting paid to be in front of green screen for that movie, is Miss Michelle Pfeiffer, who, of course, has uh, been in a couple of those movies, but uh, had a whole other career before that. We like paying tribute to an actress in general on the show. And I'm curious, Chris, uh, what's your history with Miss Michelle Pfeiffer? What was, like, the first thing you kind of saw her in, and what do you think of her in general as an actress? Uh, she's always a welcome presence in anything I've seen her in, but with, uh, like, my personal history with uh, Michelle Pfeiffer films, I realized, looking over her filmography, I haven't seen a ton even though every single time, as I said, she shows up in something, I'm like, oh, Michelle Pfeiffer, all right. This kicked up a notch here. Uh, I would say that the first uh, performance that I can really remember of hers, I see, I would assume that'd be uh, Batman Returns. That would be like the stock answer for so many people. But honestly, the one that really, uh, I feel like left an impression on me the most was Scarface. I think I saw Scarface before I ever saw Tim Burton's second Batman movie and her role as this almost like ethereal beauty, this gangster mall that uh, that Tony Montana, who has this like really skewed materialistic view of the American dream that is kind of accurate, just obsesses over and wants to make into this trophy wife and her quiet resistance to it all and that burning frustration she has like that was an incredible performance by her that 
kind of tinged her entire career for me. It's like she's always this incredible presence is this word I keep coming back to. Uh, so that's probably where I was first introduced to the presence of Michelle Pfeiffer. Yeah, I mean, I would probably more in the stock camp of, I believe Batman Returns was definitely the first thing I saw her in. Um, introduced a lot of interesting things to me at a young age. Many people at a very young age. That that very bizarre, fascinating superhero movie that will never happen again. Um, and I think the big thing with me and Pfeiffer is, like, I've seen a solid amount of her movies, especially I like doing research before the show, catching up on things I've missed uh, with her in it. And I think what's fascinating is she's kind of a chameleon of an actress in a way I don't think a lot of people really appreciate. 100%, yeah. Yeah, because I think, like, a big thing with her is she kind of feels timeless in so many ways. Like, we're going to be talking about two movies that are period pieces, and she feels very much like she fits into both of them seamlessly. And I think that's even the case where, even if she goes genre-ish with, like, Batman Returns in that very weird stylized world or Stardust, or even a more regular sort of drama, she still fits in no matter what. I think she has a really great, like, ability to just, like, tap into whatever the movie's going for and instantaneously, like, drive with it, even if, you know, the rest of the movie might not work around her necessarily. I think she really tries to, like, deep dive into, like, what makes her character and the whole movie sort of work, and I think she, more often than not, like, really works along with whatever material she's given. Yeah, I would absolutely agree with that. Uh, it's the versatility of her her oeuvre like as you said she can fit into almost any role and play and I, she doesn't really have a type to play against but you can slot her into almost any period uh any genre any like really anything and she can make it work even when the films themselves might let her down like i'm assuming i haven't seen it yet and probably not won't but i'm assuming that she is like uh, turning in incredible performances in the Ant-Man and Wasp films where people will probably say like she's the best of a rather dire state of blockbuster Marvel movies. Yeah, I at least have seen the, the last Ant-Man and the Wasp and I thought she was like pretty solid in that for what she was really given. The movie's kind of like about trying to find her necessarily. So she's not, she doesn't have a huge role in it necessarily. But then again, even in like the, what was it, in Endgame where she's in like one shot during, like, that big, like, funeral scene at the end, and she fits perfectly in with this, like, incredibly, like, long-lasting series of all these different characters. She's just like, no, she fits in with everybody else. I think that's that's the big thing, is that she's really able game for whatever. And it's a bummer that, like, I know part of it was, like, after a certain point, like, of her heyday in the 80s and 90s, she kind of, like, drifted off for a bit in the 2000s, like, right after, like, What Lies Beneath. And she said mm. to herself that, like, she kind of took a break a bit, but also it feels like a bit of Hollywood sexism at the same time that kind of, like, prevented her from, you know, being able to take on those roles as she was, you know, an actress, like, into her 50s and 60s or whatever. But at the same time, she still is incredible, and she still, like, works so well even in, like, more recent movies. I think it's just, if the roles are given to her, and she also has the desire to even, like, pounce on these roles, I think she can still knock him out, even if it's, once again, Ant-Man the Wasp or her and Michael Douglas are like, oh, we gotta get through the quantum realm, and we gotta find whatever aliens are here, I guess. Uh, they're, you know, they both earn their checks in those movies, I would say. Well, you describe that, and then you realize, like, this is a film with uh, Michael Douglas and Michelle Pfeiffer in it, and, like, 20 years ago, I would have loved to watch that movie, but it's mostly green screen action and Marvel quips. So you're really dulling some very interesting screen personas by slotting them into these roles. But yeah, I, I totally agree. Hell, an action comedy with those two and Paul Rudd? That sounds like fun. 
Oh but, yeah, that that's like a huge box office hit of like 2003. Right, <laughs> exactly. Uh, but let's travel back uh, because we're discussing two films that uh, we ended up picking at the end of our last episode. Uh, we'll first be talking about our bad pick here, which is Grease 2. And then our good pick, which is Dangerous Liaisons. Uh, but first, let's go ahead and jump into Grease 2. Get ready for another term at Rydell High with Michelle Pfeiffer and Maxwell Caulfield. and rock and roll in Greece too. So Greece 2 came out uh, June 11th, 1982. Uh, a bit of a distance between it and the original Greece from 1978, which of course this is a sequel to. Before we even get into anything about Greece 2, I'm curious, Chris, do you have any history with the 1978 very popular film Greece? Well, no. Uh, my... Okay. <laughs> My familiarity with Grease is uh, I believe my mother was a fan. So I heard snippets of the soundtrack and it was a, as you said, giant hit. It was ubiquitous in our culture. And so you pick up little traces of it here and there. So despite the fact I've never seen Grease, I feel like I've seen Grease. And from what I, from what I'm imagining, I would not be a fan of Grease. And that's why I wanted to go in completely blind to its, sequel that apparently exists to give it the best possible chance not not to taint my experience with whatever was Greece. yeah that is interesting because um when i was younger i have like a very much a contrast in that not only was i familiar with Greece, had seen Greece previously but i have uh, two younger sisters who glommed on to Greece very oh. much it's sort of like that 90s nostalgia for 70s nostalgia 50s nostalgia <laughs> kind of like snake eating its tail kind of thing yeah. there was literally a point where like i would wake up in the morning for school and like elementary school to the soundtrack from greece you are describing my own personal hell <laughs> a bit that's why i kind of like was not really a fan of greece for a while i think just because of that overexposure but i will say i did rewatch it um in prep for this episode for the first time and it must be like 20 or so years and i would still say i think greece is very shabby fun for what it is it mm -hmm. barely connects on a plot level it's very much just like songs and set pieces kind of connected together very loosely um but at the same time there's kind of a charm to that and, you know, it definitely feels like a movie that it was very popular at the time, still kind of maintained the popularity, all the way to 82, when um, Alan Carr, the big producer, decided, like, you know what, we're going to not only just make a Grease 2, but he wanted to marvel out this series, where he was like, I want to do more sequels that are set within, like, the, the later 60s and counterculture area, I want a TV show, I want to go full bore with this with Paramount, um, and uh, this did not do well enough to necessitate what? that. I, I know. 
I'm, I'm, I gotta sit you down, buddy. This was not a big hit. But it's not the first role for Pfeiffer, but it's one of her early roles. Um, and it has some interesting people also in the cast, like Christopher McDonald and uh, <laughs> Tab Hunter, a few other like fun people. Some of the people reprising their roles from Greece as well, like Dee Dee Khan um, as Frenchie, amongst other people. And so without any of that knowledge of the previous Greece, uh, Chris, uh, what'd you think of Greece 2? I am fascinated by this movie. Like, I am not entirely sure where I land on whether it's whether it's good or bad, because it's an incredibly incompetent musical. Almost all of its musical set pieces are just awfully directed. Like, nothing really works. There's no re- real sense of, like, storyline. These music scenes just kind of happen. It's... It's just a really big mess, but it's so incredibly wrongheaded and weird. And it has this life attached to a far uh, allegedly superior film that I have not seen. Yeah, I have no idea what this film is. And I'm kind of fascinated by just how weird it can get. And it's many moving parts that just seem all seem so incongruous to one another. Yeah, I think I have a similar kind of thing with it where, like, Grease 2 definitely has this weird thing where the reason why it exists is so crass and commercial. Mm-hmm. And the actual the songs, which are done uh, by a guy named Louis St. Louis, who had d- worked on, like, arranging the music that was based on, like, the Broadway show for the original Grease. And interestingly, um, he wrote one of the few original songs in Grease, which is, like, the song called Sandy that John Travolta sings on his own in a drive-in that's, like, easily the worst song of the original Grease. Like, one of the worst examples, especially having Travolta go on his own. It's just like, oh, no, there's a reason why he works better in the group songs. Yeah. Necessarily. But, um, yeah, so all the songs, I agree, are terrible, but I gotta give a lot of credit to the performers in terms of they are going to, like, 11 with, like, whatever, like, lame choreography they're given by Patricia Birch, who's the director slash choreographer, had choreographed the original Grease. Uh, this is her only directorial effort, uh, shockingly. Um, but uh, <laughs> the cast, I think, is very committed to this very bad bit that is, like, any of these dance numbers and song numbers, especially just the big thing we gotta get out of the way right off the bat is um, this movie's so horny. Like, the original Grease is also horny, but there are at least three separate musical numbers just about, like, we need to fuck. No, yeah, it's it's turning the subtext of the first film into the text of the film. Like, it, these some of these songs are just explicitly about having sex. And th- that, that, that is trying to appeal to the same audience of the first one, which is this peachy king, teeny bopper kind of throwback to the 50s, is, again, the, the word I keep coming back to is wrong-headed. Is like who is this appealing to? I, I guess me because I'm just fascinated by it. Yeah, I would say that to be fair to the original Greece, there is a bit of that lasciviousness like, kind of underneath. There's sort of the thing where like it, it feels like the sort of history of Greece has been a lot more painted by you know people like my sisters when they were younger, like glomming onto it uh, at it being kind of like oh like a lot of kids like were really interested in that movie. Even though there's a bit more of like okay, there's sort of a '50s sheen here, but they are. Like, there's more explicit stuff about, like, oh, we are kind of, like, fucking each other on the side. There's, like, implications of all this throughout the original Grease. Um, but despite, it's not very subtle in the original Grease, but by comparison to Grease 2, it is, like, you know, a very subtle, artistic piece 
about like sort of teenage sexuality versus here you've got like the song score tonight which is done uh at a bowling alley Mm -hmm. the sexiest sport of all of course (laughs) bowling uh where it's literally kids just singing like we're gonna score tonight like multiple times over that's the entire chorus um and then there's the one about um reproduction where they're singing about sexual reproduction of plants in school that at one point like literally tab hunter gets hit on by one of the students who was just like do you wear a condom basically they're like what the premise of their lyric is and then the um let's do it for our country where two kids are gonna fuck inside of like a bomb shelter <laughs> Yeah, there there is a difference between like the tone of Greece, where it's like I've got chills, they're multiplying. You can you can you can extrapolate there and figure out what he's saying. And there's a difference between that and that, like several lines in uh, "Do It for My Country." It's like Ronald Reagan wants us to fuck. <laughs> We're gonna fuck for the Statue of Liberty and Disneyland and like all their landmarks, <laughs> like for their edification. Like let's do it for the Grand Canyon, baby. Let's do it for the Grand Canyon. <laughs> Like, if it's Uncle Sam wants this, so your mother would approve, don't worry. And again, like, as you said, it's very lascivious with that, because that is a song of sexual coercion that is working off of the present in 1980s, as well as 1950s, like, paranoia over nuclear war. And it's all folded folded into this really heartfelt song that, uh, who, who is performing that song? Um... Uh, it's the Lewis and Sharon characters um, who are played by uh, Peter Frechette and uh, Maureen Teefy. Yeah, P- Peter Frechette is really selling it. Like, like I believe him that he believes his country wants him to lose his virginity. But also, the scene is set up as a ploy by him and the other T-Birds. And of course, this scene has nothing to do with the rest of the film. No, not at all. No, it's like much of the musical numbers do just kind of feel like off and center, which once again, the original Grease, like not a very cohesive plot necessarily, but at least there's kind of like a flowing thing with like, okay, Sandy and Danny Zuko have like that trouble at the beginning where like they were, were like off together for the summer. And then the conflict of like, oh, we got to present ourselves in front of each other differently. Um, as opposed to this movie kind of tries to do a gender bent version of this. Where you got, like, um, the Michelle Pfeiffer's character of Stephanie, who is the leader of the Pink Ladies, mm-hmm. who in this case is like, kind of like the tough girl who's, like, living her life. And then Maxwell Caulfield comes in as Michael, who's the dorky dude, even though this motherfucker looks like Brad Pitt. Like, oh, he, he looks is. so, he's so gorgeous. It's like, everyone's like, oh, you're a nerd and you have a British accent. No one would be attracted to a hot looking dude with a British accent. Get away. <laughs> no, no, he could, he could pose for Tiger Beat like the same day of a shoot for Grease 2. Like, I'm not buying that he is an outcast. I don't know. He wears sweater vests. That's pretty uncool. I don't know if anyone would be around him with a sweater vest. <laughs> yeah, it's the 1950s into 60s. They're all dressed like dorks. It's okay. <laughs> Look, not at all. Like, she can't be seen with him, like, with her pink collar that she puts up and she's got her glasses, sunglasses on. No way she could be seen with that nerd. <laughs> what would all. everybody say? I mean, as we all know, she is, like, eternally betrothed to one of the T Birds because of their rules. Right, which also was not a thing in the original Greece necessarily. Like, they had interactions with each other, but it wasn't a thing of, like, we have to date each other. Like, there's that <laughs> point where Adrian Zemed is just like, you know what? I'm denouncing. Uh, our our connection with each other. You know what? That's T Bird property. The pink ladies' jackets. Like that. What? When did this rule get set up? <laughs> like that's like there's like a fucking union with these two gangs together. <laughs> from what I'm, from what it just all sounds like, is that 
we needed a new hook for the sequel. So they have they have to like as well as introduce that new character. So he is the, the thing that could upset this balance that they are really trying to push for in this film. Also, they're not, though, because it's not really a plot line and it just kind of drifts away because there's another musical number coming. We have to get to it. Yeah, and also they get Adrian Zemed, who, by the way, played the role of Danny Zuko on Broadway. So they literally have to feel like, we can't get Travolta back. So let's have you, Broadway Danny Zuko, come in and just fill in that role. It feels also a lot like that, which is how the different characters kind of like proximities for what came before. But at the same time, Zemed's very committed to being like that sort of tough guy part. My favorite of the T-Birds, though, is Christopher McDonald, who people out there might know as Shooter McGavin or my favorite character actors out there, is so committed to being like the tall doofus dude. Just just the consummate clown of the group that has like some of the best lines and it and it fills that one great grease thing that I know of where it's like there is absolutely no way that that is a high school student. Look at the lines in his face. That's true. Most of them are kind of fit that same, like, we're late 20s, early 30s people playing high schoolers, except the weird one in this case is very young Pamela Adlon as Dolores, the mm-hmm. one pink lady who actually looks like a child and also is the one who keeps coming up to Maxwell Caulfield just like, hey, you want to go out sometime and stuff like that? Like, this is very uncomfortable. I don't know why we're doing this. It is. It's a really weird decision, but I really liked her performance in this. I feel like outside of uh, Pfeiffer, she's the only pink lady that has a kind of that has a kind of screen presence, unfortunately, because she has so many great bits in this movie. There's that one scene when she's skateboarding to the bowling alley and she passes by uh, the big bat. Well, the, what is supposed to be the villain of the movie and goes by him. No issue there. And then as soon as she gets to the door, she turns around and goes like scum. <laughs> yeah, I love that. Like it, she, she's a it's a very cute character that uh, is obviously playing beyond her years and trying to fit in. I mean, she. She says that she takes this whole like mascot role as a compromise for the pink ladies, and it's a really funny performance. My favorite bit of her is the bit near the very end of the movie where Michelle Pfeiffer and Maxwell Caulfield are actually together by the end. And then she just comes up and she's just like, oh, look, Maxwell Caulfield, I'm sorry. I've actually got a guy myself, so we can't keep seeing each other. It's a fun bit. But you mentioned her, of course, but let's focus a bit more on Pfeiffer here. Uh, you know, she got this role, it's like very early in her career, pre-Scarface, and apparently she was like, got this role somehow despite the fact that she was not professionally trained as a singer or a dancer. She was like doing lessons during the audition process and was very surprised she got the role. How do you feel about Pfeiffer in the very early performance here? I think this performance is good, like very good. I have no idea what it's doing in this movie. Like, she has an incredible, like, well, not incredible, like a very engaging arc to this, uh, to Grease 2, where she's like locked into this weird, like, relationship with the T-Birds. And she seems so blasé about this whole organization they have and wants this, what she thinks to be this perfection of her, like, desires, which is this cool rider character that she wants. And when she gets it, there's a moments, it's all pushed by Michelle Pfeiffer's acting where she's like conflicted about it while she is gradually falling in love with Michael Carrington, Maxwell Caulfield's character. And it's such a like a weirdly grounded performance that feels like a like run of the mill, like high school girl discovering like real love for the first time. 
which is fantastic and she again she has presence like you can tell like from the get-go as one of her first roles she has star power no matter what uh Grease 2 did at the box office she was going to be fine because people were going to notice her in this role but when everybody else is playing this parodic archetype of 1950s youth culture or rather like a parody of a parody of the Grease roles that are trying to slot them into she sticks out like so well and then so badly because it does it feels like she's off in her own movie yeah to the degree that during her great song cool writer uh which is not a very well written song but she really sells it once again with whatever limited choreography she has but there's a point where she's like doing some chicken bucks with like her her arms and stuff like that it doesn't matter because she looks instantaneously still like very cool and very much like she's just in that ecstasy of just like this is my fantasy of what i want out of a man and like as she's dancing there's that point where like she leaves the auditorium where she starts dancing and then into the school and no one pays attention to her like to the degree that like as the song is ending <laughs> it's uh, maxwell caulfield and i believe a uh, peter frichette are talking to each other about other bullshit like they don't even notice that she's leaving She's like, so anyway, yo, can you write a paper for me? <laughs> God, uh, again, just uh, so many plot lines that go nowhere in this film. But that cool writer scene is interesting in like because it points to all the problems with this film that it's not a greatly written song, but Pfeiffer sells it with her uh, singing performance as well as not necessarily her physical performance, but what she's able to do outside of the chore- choreography. You do really buy that. It's like this weirdly longing song for a meatloaf character from like because it's like a bad out of hell song honestly but this sequence is shot terribly for a musical like it's for each of the three verses it's close up on michelle pfeiffer's face uh talking to maxwell caulfield then the second verse her climbing a ladder and then the third verse as you said like chicken balking dancing in an abandoned room like this is a terrible set piece for your movie that is supposed to be like It's supposed to explain her entire character and her whole arc of like what she wants and her like emotional side. And it's completely let down by this bland, uninteresting direction. But at the same time, I do appreciate what she's able to do within even like that bad direction, bad choreography, like the ladder thing where there's a point where like she literally gets up on the ladder, climbs up and then sits like the top of it to, like, really intimate, like, the sexuality that she's actually trying to, like, portray about, like, what she wants out of a man, and then slides down the ladder pretty seamlessly in a way where I'm just like, oh, wow, I can't believe you actually just, like, didn't fall on your face based on this incredibly <laughs> dangerous choreography. I'm like, yeah, climb the ladder, Michelle, and then, like, kind of go down a few steps but, like, land in a cool way. It's like, you were going to, like, destroy her feet if she'd, like, land in the wrong place. Oh, but yeah, she, that- like, makes it look cool. And that was like a bockety set ladder that could easily have fell, fallen over. Like they're, they're putting the potential future star Michelle Pfeiffer's life in their hands. And I don't think I trust the director of Grease 2 with that. Not necessarily, no. But she has this weird sincerity to her entire character about mm-hmm. kind of like completely dismantling what the idea of like the T-Birds and the Pink Ladies are. Which for the record, if this was meant to continue like a big franchise, that feels like a bad step. <laughs> Which is like, man, this is all bullshit, right? That we're doing this. Like, hey, what are you talking about? T-Birds and pink ladies, everything. Come on. All leading up to like the talent show, which is like the big thing. Like everybody's kind of leading toward a bunch of musical numbers happen there. And I will also say, even though it's a, it leads into like a really dumb, like fantasy sequence, the bit where like she's performing at the talent show, but then like she's overcome with grief about the potential death of like her dream guy. And she's just like 
coming down the stairs and then like looks off into the distance like she's got PTSD. It's a genuinely effective moment, once again, for a dumb movie where it cuts to like her having a fantasy sequence with like her dream guy in like weird white heaven and bullshit like that. It's so dumb, but she's selling it as much yeah. as she possibly can. Which is just all the more like inexplicable. Like why are like I I get it. It's your first starring role, so yeah, you have to bring everything. But you outclass everything else in this movie in that one sequence of her breaking off from that uh, girl for every season song, which is just God. Like most of the talent show songs are incredibly forgettable. She just becomes like Michelle Pfeiffer in that one small segment, only to be undercut by that weird fantasy sequence that is shot in the grayest haziest version of heaven i've ever seen in my life you can't make out shit in that yeah i think it's also not helped obviously by just the fact that as great as pfeiffer is you have to be convinced that she would fall for caulfield who in this movie is playing like the most stereotypical sort of like nerd possible with once again like the british accent and the good looks but still like there's no real chemistry between the two of them not at all like, there's that bit where he talks, but she's like, uh, have you read the latest Superman comic? And she's like, uh, not in the last five minutes or whatever. And it's like, that feels like more accurate display of, like, what their relationship would be. Like, not this, like, oh, you're a secret nerd who, like, I kind of have feelings for, but I really have feelings for my cool writer. Oh, wait, you're one and the same? Oh, looks like I got two for one price or whatever by the end of it. No, it's like... Vi- that you, you don't believe there's necessarily chemistry at all in this. N- not at all. Like, Michelle Pfeiffer presence maxwell caulfield he blends into the backdrop he is he's always kind of from what i've seen him in he's always kind of been a wooden actor and here he's given he's given more substantial things to do but in everything it's just maybe it's the fault of the writing but there is no there's nothing charming here other than his charming boyish good looks and the fact that you have this the stephanie character who is being very like, as I'm saying, like very interesting with her whole arc, th- this uh, weird romantic problem she's finding herself in where she is given exactly what she wants. And she's wondering if that's real, if it's all cracked up to be, and if it's just a fantasy, what does she want out of this cool writer person who just shows up and leaves? Like that scene with her and Maxwell Caulfield in the diner where she's explaining all this to him and like, I'm I'm into it like I'm buying everything she says like it looks like it sounds like she's really working through something and there's just Caulfield just sitting there repeating things back at her just uh waiting for his burger talking about Hamlet scintillating chemistry though the two of them just you can instantly tell they're gonna fall in love at that luau that happens (sighs) later she has more chemistry with Adrian Zemed because I believe that at one point there was a relationship there that that went wrong because of the T-Bird pink lady thing and their whole weird bond. Like this launched the career of Michelle Pfeiffer to a degree. And I would feel like she would not be like embarrassed to bring it up again. Caulfield, like this might be all he got. Yeah, I'd probably say. If anything, he has more chemistry with Frenchie, which is a really weird thing where like she was one of the pink ladies in the original movie. And I guess like she's the one who they could get to come back. Mm. And she explains just like, oh, yeah, I'm trying to uh, get uh, all my credits together so I can uh, get get out of here or whatever after I dropped out for beauty school. She's one of many weird characters who come back. Like you have like the principal, uh, Eve Arden, or Sid Caesar as the coach, Eddie Deason 
voice of Mandark coming back um, yeah. as, like, one of the side people. Even the villain who you're talking about, Leo, is Dennis Stewart, who was the villain of the original movie and had, like, the big drag race with John Travolta. So it's just like, dude, are you just hanging around this fucking high school trying to, like, race kids from, like, cars to motorcycles? Like, get a fucking life. What are you doing? Yeah, like, you're just you're just picking beefs with, like, the next generation of T-Birds. Like, congratulations. You, you drove your motor- motorcycle around a bunch of high schoolers. Uh, you, you got any plans outside of that? Um, how are you supporting yourself, sir? <laughs> oh, yeah, but I mean, is, is there anything else to say about Grease 2 for you? Any final thoughts about Grease 2 there, Chris? I feel like there's going to be a point sometime in the future where just like a light clicks on my brain. It's like, Grease 2 kind of slaps. Sorry to break the trend here, but like, Grease 2 kind of slaps. Not there yet. I can see it coming, maybe, but... Yeah, I was just really intrigued by this. And like many of the problems come from direction and the song choices and it's like attachment to Greece because I have no nostalgia for that. And the fact that even there was a sequel produced is just baffling to me. And I'm responding to what you said that it's a much hornier version of Greece. And that's fascinating to me. So yeah, I'm just, I'm just kind of intrigued by it. Like there's a phrase that I like to use called a watch it w-h-a-t-c-h-i-t uh where you kind of have to just like let it wash over you it's like what is what is anything what are the decisions behind most of what I'm watching here so yeah like uh maybe one day I will say like actually Grease 2 is far superior than the original Grease but not today you know you wouldn't be alone though that's the thing is this movie has built a bit of a cult following there are some who would argue that Grease 2 is better than Grease, and I mean, I can see at least why people would have that fascination. I remember seeing this, like, not too long after I, my sisters were in the big Grease phase, and I was just like, um, I don't know, this is even not nearly as good as this movie I don't like necessarily, but, like, going back to it, I find it, I, I agree, very fascinating, just as, like, a weird cultural object, of, like, okay, we're gonna transplant Grease, massive of the late 70s, into the early 80s, and we're gonna get into like the early 60s and we're gonna integrate a lot of that stuff and be much more explicitly horny in a way that like i'm not sure who it would necessarily appeal to yet at the same time i am deeply intrigued by it i think despite the fact that i don't think any of the songs are very good and i don't think the direction or the choreography is that great it's really on the entire cast who is committing to the various odd bits, and particularly being just as, like, crazy and insane as they possibly can be during the musical numbers, except for Pfeiffer, who was way more committed to just being a genuinely, like, interesting, introspective high schooler, kind of, like, going through a lot of shit about, like, who does she, what does she want out of life, and who does she want in a partner, and all these other fascinating things that, like, I agree with you, it's a weird gumbo, it's a weird stew, that, like, there's a lot of different ingredients in there, but at the same time, like, I can't help but commit to eating the whole bowl of that soup no matter how weird it tastes <laughs> i mean i definitely agree with you i think like uh, it is definitely one that you has to wash over you yeah yeah it's like as a deeply cynical cash in sequel to a cultural phenomenon this could have been a lot worse and a lot more forgettable and the fact that i even remember bits and some parts of songs and even character names to me like as someone who has no context for greece is kind of impressing me Yes, uh, but we have a whole other feature to talk about here. Let's get into our good feature, Dangerous Liaisons. I've always known I was born to dominate your sex and avenge my own. Is there anything I could do to help? 
come back when you've succeeded with Madame de Torvel. Yes. And I will offer you a reward. My love. I have this appalling reputation. Yes, I have been warned about you. What is true of most men is doubly so of him. Love what you, you promised yes, not to speak of it. Yes, of course, I understand, but I must know. I can't. I want the excitement of watching her betray everything that's most important to her. I love you so much. Why do you suppose we only feel compelled to chase the ones who run away? Immaturity. So, Dangerous Liaisons came out uh, December 16th, 1988, uh, from director Stephen Frears and writer Christopher Hampton, uh, which was based on his play that in turn was based on the 1782 novel. This was a movie that uh, Adam had picked this, he sent me his picks, uh, even in his sabbatical, and I had always heard about this movie, but never seen it. And it's very interesting, especially um, if any of you are fans of Cruel Intentions out there, uh, this is the basis for Cruel Intentions, uh, in which we follow uh, two folks in uh, 18th century France uh, who are played by uh, Glenn Close and John Malkovich, who are highly aristocratic, have a lot of money, very bored. So they decide in their boredom, uh, hey, let's fuck with some people and let's do some like weird kinky sex shit um, and do very, like just mainly to destroy their lives. And uh, that's in ends up encompassing uh, both a young woman played by Uma Thurman and the wife of a nobleman uh, who's off uh, in Congress, uh, played by Michelle Pfeiffer, and uh, some other people pop up here, including Peter Capaldi and a very young Keanu Reeves. We'll get into all of it. It's a very interesting uh, movie, but I'm curious, uh, Chris, did you have any relationship with Dangerous Liaisons before I tasked you to watch it for the show? Uh, yes, I had seen this film before. I can't remember exactly when. It was in one of those periods when, like, probably in, like, uh, a height of Marvel releasing, not to bring them up again, but, like, the, the thought occurred to me, it's like, man, they used to make movies for adults about adult things and dangerous liaisons. Like I had not seen it at the time. It's like, this feels like a movie for adults. Like bear in mind, I'm like 22 saying this, but so it's a, <laughs> like it, me, a totally grown up big boy. <laughs> I, I... <laughs> so it, it was just like, it was just like a curiosity. Cause I, I had known Stephen Frears, uh, his work and I've been interested in a lot of it. And this has felt like a, like a big film for big performances. And so I thought like I would give it a shot and yeah, it, I was just kind of bowled over by it. Um, so many great performances in this film. Like this is one of my favorite Malkovich performances. Uh, her, him and Glenn Close, their weird kinky duel that they have each other that's all born onto these just very innocent and virtuous uh, other members of the aristocracy that are just just getting sucked into these two people's depravity. It's a really great stage uh, adaptation or adaptation of a stage play rather. And it's a really tight psychosexual thriller. Yeah. Um, like I said, this is the first time I'd seen it. And uh, this movie is incredibly entertaining. I think that's, mm -hmm. that's the weird thing. It's like, I agree with you that it's very much like it's a movie for adults, but at the same time, it's definitely a movie where I'm watching it, and even though I'm by myself watching it um, on my TV, at the same time, just like, oh, shit. Oh, no. Oh, this is happening now. Oh, this is crazy. I can't believe it. Like, this feels like a movie that would be great with, like, an audience who would encompass adults, but at the same time, it kind of gives you that entertaining thrill of just, like, this the weird sort of, like, sexual thriller that we also don't get a lot of now, just given, you know, a lot of the desexualization of Hollywood. That's a huge 
Twitter discourse that's yep. going on and rages for months on end. Uh, but when you see a movie like this, you can kind of see it because, like, with the John Malkovich and Glenn Close characters, the big thing is just that, like, they're doing this back and forth because Close is tempting. Just, like, if you can prove to me that you will take uh, Michelle Pfeiffer, who's this noble woman who does not go for any of our depravities and sink her down to our level and prove it to me in writing... I'll fuck the shit out of you. <laughs> and he's just like, challenge accepted. <laughs> and like that, just the fact that like it goes on like a wager, like this is like the two fucking brothers from trading places. Like it's over a dollar kind of bullshit. Is <laughs> like, is so fascinating to me. And I think like the chemistry off of Close and Malkovich, there is a sexuality there, but there's also so much inherent depravity where, especially just considered like Close, obviously I've seen her in like other things and I can see her being a sexual being at some point. Malkovich is like, so a slimy weirdo dude who yeah. I would never imagine being sexual, but it works for this movie. Like when he says to Michelle Pfeiffer at one point, like, I adore you. And even the music is like incredibly terrifying. Like it's a horror movie <laughs> where it's just like him giving you a compliment of some kind of like big expression of love is a danger. Don't go there. No, this is bad. <laughs> exactly. Cause it's, a, it's such a calculating performance. It's a sinister kind of aristocrat who is like absolutely bored with the pleasures of life, like who can probably only really get hard if he knows that it's fucking with somebody else. Like the the and it's just it's as you said so slimy, so manipulative, even to the point where uh, it might be to the detriment of the third act, where his late uh, in film turn after the love of Michelle Pfeiffer's character Dave Torvald has like put him onto a new path. It's still just he's just way too committed to that sliminess of the earlier scenes where it, it's a hard sell and Malkovich uh, does his best, but yeah, it's, it's, it, it, like slimy is the word I keep coming back to you. Like you really nailed it with that one. And at the same time, like you can still see why, like at least a Pfeiffer would be, curious about him because he just feels so different from her life where she is like very like noble and doesn't have any kind of like awful pursuits but he follows her like a fucking shark like that's my favorite shot of this movie is the bit where like she's walking down like in the garden and he's like following her and he like swoops between like the shot of her and it's just like he's literally like a predator circling his prey but at the same time like you can see why at least Pfeiffer has like a fascination he's just like this is so different this is so odd for me. Like, he's giving me something completely different in my life. Meanwhile, it's Malkovich being just like, I love you with a fiery passion. <laughs> it's like, no, he's no. a shark. Get that, away from him. That, that shot is so great because while uh, he is, like, stepping back and forth between each of her sides, uh, his face is almost completely stone-faced. Like, he has no expression there. It's just, like, he's reciting all of these uh, words of woo to her. And with every step, she's, like, reacting and, like, not showing him anything, but like keeping it all to herself. It's a great like summation of those two characters. Yeah, like there is some really great direction happening in this film. And also just a lot of great, like even stuff that's like comedic and fun. Like there's the bit where um, I believe it's Glenn Close is talking with uh, Uma Thurman or somebody else like comes in and fucking Malkovich is in the background trying to hide. <laughs> He's like swooping around like moonwalking and other bullshit. <laughs> It's, like, it's genuinely very, like, funny at the same time. It never, like, destroys any of the, like, the tension of all of this. There's, like, a lot of, like, humorous stuff there, but it's sort of, like, a pithy, almost dark humor. Like, even especially whenever Glenn Close, like, gets more news, just like, oh, are you getting close to her? 
fascinating. And she like holds her hand and shit like that. She's like, oh, oh, she's getting off on this. And like, she has a, a very similar kind of like fascinating depravity to her this whole time where she's just like, even the fact that she initially wants like him to woo Uma Thurman. Mm-hmm. And then Malkovich is like, no, I have my sights on Michelle Pfeiffer. Okay, fine. You can go off for that for a bit. But meanwhile, I'm going to manipulate the shit around here to where you have to come back and you have to help me out with my depravity. You can't have your own thing. You got to help with my thing. <laughs> no, it's like these two were kind of like made for each other and they were like a closest character and Malkovich's character like they were destined to destroy one another inevitably there's a great shot of uh close like when she sent for to like talk to Thurman's character after what Malkovich does to her and she steps out of her carriage and she has this big evil like the Grinch kind of smile on her and then it drops immediately when she sees uh like Thurman's mother uh well Car- Thurman's character's mother running towards her and she's like all sympathetic it's like these two-faced bastards yeah considering like Uma Thurman has just been like violated horribly by yes. Malkovich it's upsetting and um she like response that was just like no dear this is a good thing he can teach you so much these two people are just fucking monsters i can't believe it but at the same time they're such compelling monsters i have to keep watching to, to the point uh which will uh i guess we'll like move into now about like the other like performances in the film like when i first watched dangerous liaisons like i was captivated by malkovich and glenn close and didn't really think much about uh, Thurman, Pfeiffer's, even Reeves's uh, performances, like as uh, in their supporting roles. But in this in this go around, like I was just w- just way more drawn to like their pained, like virtuous uh, corruption arcs that like uh, De Torval and uh, Volange go on. I agree. Yes, I think with with like Thurman and Reeves, they feel like the most sort of innocence. They're just being manipulated like chess pieces. Mm-hmm. And particularly, like, Reeves, obviously, like, this is not too long before uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula. He's not really even attempting a British accent here, which I think is thankful, like, or French or anything. He's just kind of slightly more aristocratic. But I love the bit where him and Thurman, he's on the piano and she's on the harp, and he, like, sends a note quickly and just says, I love you, and, like, cursive. They're like kids. It's adorable. There's, like, a cute innocence between the two of them, even to the degree that, like, when he ends up sh- uh, shacking up with Glenn Close, like, they are never naked together. Together. And even like when, whenever they are near each other, like when Malkovich walks in on the two of them, it looks like he's almost like sucking from Glenn Close's teeth. Like he's a child. He is like a there's child. Nothing, yeah. there, there's nothing at all. Like even sexual often, like even the look that he has when he's just like standing on top of Glenn Close, both clothed, and Malkovich is like, oh, and to find you here too. He's just like, uh, uh, I should go see Ted. I'm gonna leave. <laughs> like he's so like completely guilty over it. Like both him and Thurman, I think, do a really great job of playing the innocence there. And then Pfeiffer, I mean, we should probably talk about kind of a thankless role in theory for her. Where, mm-hmm. Like she's playing this woman who could just be like, oh, I'm uh, another innocent who's corrupted. And I'm just like a, she's like very prim and proper. And even she just lets out a bit of detail about like, oh, yeah, I've heard about you, uh, Malkovich. I, I'm aware of all of your like trifles and tribulations. But I really believe her sort of descent that she goes on here where it's like a corruption that like, is not at all from her just being sexual. She feels like she's kind of like awakening and opening up herself about like what she could be as a person. And she thinks that Malkovich can have that. And then when Malkovich does the whole, like it's beyond my control bit, it is devastating to see her just crumble like that. It's so heartbreaking. And you feel like it's not just, Oh, a woman was doomed by a man. And it's like very like one dimensional. It's like, no, there's a lot of dimension there to like her, like discovering herself and then breaking apart. There's a real tragedy that feels palpable to her. 
no yeah because uh it's it's really illustrating that um what what Malkovich and Glenn Close have been doing throughout this entire film is like playing with these people's lives and not and that's like the first kind of instance of like there are serious kind of like emotional consequences to toying with someone's emotions for like for months and months on end it's like that whole breakdown scene between her and Malkovich like as you said it's heartbreaking because like there was no on her end there was no like sense of abandoning her like uh morals or anything she was just like there was a, a new desire and love awakening in her for this Malkovich character despite all that she's been told and it it breaks her heart to know that everything she gave up like her virtue her reputation for him is just thrown back in her face and like the the way that she like struggles to deal with that it's like again that that presence of Pfeiffer it just sells it all yeah like I, I love that performance of her and I'm like ashamed that I didn't see it like the first time around when I watched Dangerous Liaisons but when you have Close and Malkovich just going so big with their two performances and Pfeiffer's not is not doesn't get to do that kind of big sweeping character it's a it's a more like like as I kind of gravitated towards in Greece too a more grounded and emotionally sincere performance and it it just really works here it really sells like the tragedy that's going on with this whole thing like her and thurman especially i think both sell the fact that just like they they're losing so much because of these like little games these people are playing what feels to them like oh this is just us like moving chess pieces around and like looking at each other erotically meanwhile those chess pieces have feelings mm -hmm. and emotions and you're totally fucking with them this whole time and it, it feels like there's like really the two of them sell beautifully just the fact that there are consequences to these actions that like they don't even consider like i agree with you that i think the biggest pill that i would have to swallow is that malkovich is any kind of like regret about what he's done after like that big scene just like i don't know this feels like you're you're kind of embarrassed of your kink now like i don't know you were pretty big on this you mm -hmm. had a huge erection this whole time <laughs> and now you're just like finally realizing just like oh maybe this was a bad thing like i don't know if i would believe that necessarily that but at the same time i do really like like as it gets to the actual duel between him and reeves and eventually, like, his basic suicide by Reeves' blade. Um, how, like, that one, that final line is so good about just, like, Keanu Reeves saying, like, oh, I I don't think, you gotta admit that, like, I'm gonna take this with a grain of salt, basically. Mm -hmm. And he's just like, well, that's true, I mean, because your intentions were pure the entire time, not something that anyone could say about me at all, I and mean, then dies instantaneously. Like, I get at least somebody having that kind of, like, realization and epiphany on their deathbed. <laughs> just like, oh, yeah, I was a dick. Bye. Like, <laughs> it's just... like my my entire run of of uh, the higher echelons of society has just been just been like a negative effect on everybody. Like, I am I am a cad. I am a rakish asshole, and I have to now die with that. Um, but it's just a it's just like a a positive and negative of Malkovich's like whole approach to acting is that he's incredibly calculated. Like every single decision he makes, it feels like uh, it was labored over for weeks on end. And it, it plays really well in like the first uh, like two thirds of this film when he has to be this like manipulating uh, Machiavellian kind of sexual deviant. But in that third act, during that duel, I'm way more convinced that he was more invested in giving Reeves the letters of... Uh, closest character to ruin her reputation and like oh yeah and, and if you can like um go, go tell her that i i really did care for her 
Anyway, bleh. Which I do even love the fact that when Reeves goes over to tell Pfeiffer, she's just like, just fucking stop. <laughs> I don't care. I'm dying here of a broken heart. Fuck that dude. I'm out of here. <laughs> just like she dies there. But yeah, it, leading up to like the finale of this movie with Close, like going to her opera box and everybody booing her after those letters <laughs> have been released. And then her going full, just like, oh, I'm taking off all this makeup. And just like that shot on Close, like the final closing shot for just taking off all that makeup is beautiful and I think sums up so well because like you at least see with close that it feels like and she kind of hints at this with dialogue and stuff that like this is much more a case of like with her it's very like plotted revenge against like the guy who Uma Thurman is betrothed to who used to be her lover Mm -hmm. and it's much more like this thing about oh men have destroyed me so I'm gonna have some power finally in my life and even if that means I gotta horribly destroy women in my wake I don't care I'm finally gonna have some kind of power in this scenario Um, even though she's horribly cruel and still deserves that fate at the same time there's that smidge more of empathy you kind of have which is like that's was just her trying to get power in some way uh, even though she did it in a horrible monstrous way and she deserved everything that came to her at the same time it's like oh i still feel a smidge bad not too bad because fuck you but damn it's still harsh yeah and it's it's played on like two levels there because uh there's that great line she has early on uh where it's like I, I choose to dominate your sex and avenge my own when speaking to Malkovich. It's like, yeah, that's a perfect like summary of her whole character and what she's been doing with all of her influence in society. And in that final shot, it's uh, like there is that tinge of empathy there because like, yeah, you're no, you're no longer protected. But in the process of taking off all that makeup and by herself rather than have all her servants do it, it's like you, you start to realize like, oh, right. The only reason why you were able to play chess with these people's emotions is because you are incredibly guarded in society you have influence you you have you have privilege that these other characters just don't and they can't they can't see through your designs because they trust you as this this person who is on a higher rung of society and having her remove all of these like indicators of that status it brings her back down to like almost a human level where in the entirety of the film she's a monster Right, yeah. I think he does a really good job with that. And, you know, just in terms of, like, some of the other stuff here, like, Close was nominated along with Pfeiffer for Best Supporting Actress, and it was nominated for Best Score or the Academy Awards, but it ended up winning Adapted Screenplay, Art Direction, and Costume Design. Those three very deserved. I think we haven't talked yeah. that much about how it looks and everything, but it's such a perfect recreation of, like, that kind of, like, right before the Revolution era France and with the costumes and the art direction and everything. It just feels like it, it, it works for like the fact that it looks so authentic and like grand and massive. It makes their sort of like machinations, her and Clo- uh, close and Malkovich's machinations work so wonderfully. We're just like, Oh, we're in this big opulent, beautiful place and wearing these elaborate, lovely outfits. God, we're so bored. Let's fuck with people so we can get hard on. Let's do that. Cause this is so big and massive. And I, we're so small. Let's just fuck with the other smaller people. <laughs> We, we are surrounded by the laps of luxury in these in, in these like historic buildings that have stood the test of time. But, you know, that's just not enough. Like I, I like I need to break somebody's heart. Yeah. Even down to like one of my favorite details is Malkovich uh, at one point is like completely nude and is like writing a letter to uh, the Michelle Pfeiffer character on the back of a young woman who he's like been having sex with on the side 
It's just like, that's how like opulent is just like, oh, I can't write on like this elaborate desk I have off to the side of my bed. No, I have to write on this woman who's here and I can get off on also doing this, like treating her like furniture, treating her like an object. But, yeah. It does, but, it's another, like all, around all this opulence, he's once again just doing something depraved and maddening and also getting her off at the same time with it. It's so perfect. And it's, the, again, layers to that because it's literally turning this uh, woman into an object while he is attempting to seduce another woman with that letter and and make her believe that he legitimately loves her it's the layers of scum that this guy has is incredible which i think that's the thing is like that's the thing adam and i have talked about often on the show is that sort of like the lack of likability quote-unquote with characters and i think like i'm not someone who usually subscribes to like a character has to be likable for me to be invested and this is i think a great example of that where these two characters are some of the most loathsome awful people i've ever seen but I am so fascinated to watch them do all these horrible things to people because they're, like, so, like, clever in the way that they talk to each other. There's such, like, a deliciousness to their back and forth. And also just, like, it's a fascinating plot that is, like, on a certain level, like, so malicious. Even down to, like, fucking Malkovich has a toady that's played by Peter Capaldi's character <laughs> who, like, one aspect of this, like, oh, I have to get the letters from from uh, Michelle Pfeiffer so I can, like, know exactly who's, like, sending messages and correspondences. So um, I need Peter Capaldi to have sex with that uh, maid and then I will blackmail her into giving me those letters. And then the way he walks out and, like, sees Capaldi and initially looks like, oh, I'm disgusted, but yeah, motherfucker, right? We did that. Yeah, here we go. <laughs> we were, this is working. <laughs> Capaldi's also really fun in that very small part. <laughs> Yeah, he's not given a lot to do, but uh, he and Malkovich have like a really nice uh, like uh, servant uh, master kind of relationship there. And it's uh, it's really entertaining. My, my favorite like line read from Malkovich, and it's a nothing line, but it speaks volumes to his character and he imbues it like, like so much menace is after his whole scheme of publicly giving to a like a uh, poor person to hopefully have that news make it back to uh pfeiffer uh like capaldi tells him like you know like there's a bunch of these families all around and he was like really he seemed like genuinely like surprised <laughs> that people lived in poverty and that they were living in like shanty towns all like all over france and he was like really huh what do you know or even just the bit after, like, he does that, where he gives to that poor family. And then it immediately cuts to him, like, walking back up to his palace with, like, a bunch of, like, beggars around him. Just like, please, help me, please. And he's just got this look, like, disgust on his face. Like, ugh, urchin. Here, fine, here's some coins, some petty coins. Leave! Leave what? my sight. It's, I, like, it's darkly funny, which is how, like, awful he is to these poor people. I, I think after he, like, hands out a couple of coins, he says, like, and that's enough for today. <laughs> yes. Oh my god, so good. I mean, Chris, is there any any final thoughts you have about Dangerous Liaisons? Uh, just to repeat what I said before, we used to make films for adults, and th this was a genuine hit when it came out, and I was, like, shocked by it, like, that, and, and that you have these like, weighty performances, and uh, again, just connecting it to, like, the unexpected theme between this and Grease 2, incredibly, incredibly horny. And yes, yes, it's a great time. It's a wonderfully sinister period piece. Uh, just so many great, uh, so, so many great scenes that have so many layers of each character working off one another. Yeah, it's a great uh, time that you would not expect with this kind of material. 
Yeah, I think that's the big thing is, like, I kind of avoided this when I was younger just because, like, oh, it's a stuffy, like, costume drama thing. Whatever. I don't need to see that. Uh, but kind of, like, around this, you know, same 80s era as, like, an Amadeus and some of these other movies where they have the appearance of, like, a big costume drama, but they have, like, these adult weighty themes that are there at the same time that they're incredibly entertaining, vibrant movies that are just, like, so fascinating and engrossing and as you mentioned, like, very sexual and horny in a way that feels, like, very nuanced and has, like, so many layers to it with all these different characters. It's just, it's so amazing. I would definitely say, if you were a fan of something like, say, recently, The Favorite, uh, you should definitely seek this out. It has a very similar kind of, like, satiric vibe to it that I think really works uh, for that. Uh, but at the same time, yeah, it's, it's definitely one of those things we don't get a lot of uh, currently, like, these kind of, like, psychosexual fascinating throws that actually have, like, quality of sensuality to them. And it's a real testament to, like, all the performers here, including Pfeiffer, uh, who, despite, you know, sort of not playing quite into, like, she's more, I think she would come be, become more a bit known for, like, the sort of sultry, kind of more femme fatale-esque character. Mm-hmm. She's not playing that at all here. And I think she still imbues that character with a lot of, like, nuance and, uh, you know, sexuality and tragedy that still really works for her, as everyone else does in this movie. Ace's great fucking movie. Yeah. But it's time we get to our weekly segment, The Double Redo. Double redo, double redo, double redo, double redo, double redo, double redo, double 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 um, you know, a good and a bad movie related to a topic. Uh, we also, uh, during this segment, recommend a good movie you all should see related to the topic and then steer you away from a bad one that you shouldn't even bother with. Uh, so I have my two picks for Michelle Pfeiffer. And I'll start off here with a movie I didn't see until uh, just a couple of days ago, uh, The Fabulous Baker Boys, which is what I kind of heard of and I ended up really digging quite a bit. Uh, if you're unaware, this is a movie in which the titular Baker Boys are uh, brother piano players played by actual brothers Jeff Bridges and Bo Bridges. Uh, they work sort of like blue collar, like going to clubs and stuff where they play like dueling pianos, uh, but they're falling a bit more on hard times. And there's a bit more of a conflict where like Bo is a family man who uh, just wants to kind of like keep getting gigs so he can put food on the table. And Jeff is very isolated, doesn't have really many connections except for his dog and a neighbor girl who he like occasionally takes care of as like her mother's out and kind of distant from her. So the two of them realize at a certain point, like, well, we're kind of losing out on gigs. We kind of need to add some new element to the act. So we're going to hire a singer. And they go through some auditions and eventually find uh, this singer played by Michelle Pfeiffer, who ends up uh, adding a perfect uh, mix to the two of them and ends up getting them a lot of gigs. Uh, But at the same time, Jeff Bridges starts getting feels for Pfeiffer's character. And uh, it ends up becoming, you know, sort of a big blocking point between his brother um, and the actual business that they're doing versus like what he actually wants out of life and his passions for doing more like jazz set stuff that he gets out of like what her desires are as well for performing but also even their sexual desires and I think it's a great little like sort of uh, dramedy movie uh, where there's a lot of like funny lines and back and forth between all these characters but there's also a palpable sense of sexuality particularly there's a whole bit where Pfeiffer does like a big singing number like one shot to um the man i love song and it's so tremendous it's such a great 
example of like what she can actually display and there's also once again this movie that feels like it's for adults in terms of like right after they sort of have like this big new year's eve bash that they perform at where uh Bo is gone bridges and pfeiffer have like this cool down moment where they're just talking to each other and then she's just like oh my god i'm, I'm feeling tensed up can you like help me with just give me like a, a bit of like a massage or something and they have the sexiest back massage scene I've ever seen in a movie. <laughs> it is so just like immediately like palpable that connection they have and fascinating. It's 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 such a great movie that once again feels like it's actually for adults, which is not something unfortunately we get a lot of these days, like we mentioned with Dangerous Liaisons. Um, and then my bad pick is uh, her reuniting with the director who got a great performance out of her in Batman Returns. Uh, she reunited with Tim Burton for Dark Shadows, which. You know, the Johnny Depp of it all makes it immediately not interesting as a movie. Uh, but even before all the recent controversies with him, um, this was like a dead-on-arrival, very bad horror comedy that had, I think, some potential with especially like a huge cast around Depp, like Chloe Moretz, Pfeiffer, Jackie Earl Haley, a lot of fun people in this movie. Um, but it's it's based on the old uh, soap opera involving like a vampire character like coming back into from like the 1800s into like the 70s. And it feels, like, very, like, familiar and tired. None of the jokes really work that well. The only thing that really works for me is Ava Green, who plays the sort of, like, immortal love interest for uh, Giant Depp's character. One of many examples where I was just like, man, Ava Green, I, you're popping so wonderfully. I wish you wouldn't do Tim Burton movies, because she was on that kick for quite a bit. And uh, otherwise, yeah, even, like, Pfeiffer is, like, so sidelined, along with, like, most of the other cast, that it just feels like a tremendous waste of so much talent that's involved there. Uh, I fucking love the fabulous Baker Boys. That is yeah. that is a phenomenal movie. Uh, that's like one of my favorite Jeff Bridges performances. Performances and that like natural, obviously brotherly chemistry he has with Bo Bridges, it just pops right off the screen. This is like also one of my favorite. Like I would hold this up as like a near perfect screenplay. Just everything in it just works so well. And yeah, Pfeiffer as a, that loud singer. I think like. Susie Diamond is her name or something? I believe so, yeah. Yeah, like uh, one of her best like musical performances. Uh, she has an incredible voice in that movie. But yeah, just the way that she's in, like introduced to this duo of brothers and completely unseats it. It's like just a perfect movie for adults. Not to harp on that, but yeah, love it. And also just a shout out, a very fun young performance from Jennifer Tilly. That, that is true, yeah. One of the field editioners, yes. Uh, but I don't like the thing about Fabulous Baker Boys too much because that Steve Cloves, the director, he got like sidelined into the Harry Potter world and just never That's came such out a again. Yeah, really, like, it was him. It's just like, oh my god, this is so great. And just like he's become like the Harry Potter like boy for like so long. Like, oh no, That's I, such I, a bummer. I think he wrote every every one of them except for like the fifth one. And it's like, man, you couldn't be making more movies like this. And Dark Shadows um, skipped it. Uh, this. And it's a really tragic reason because around the 2010s, Tim Burton became like, oh, I don't need to see every one of his movies. He's not a must watch director anymore. And that really hurt because like I held him up as like one of these, like I have to see everything that this guy's involved in that he's working with because no one is doing it like him. Like, and I maintain like, ironically, even despite the Johnny Depp of it all, Ed Wood is my favorite all time movie. And mm. He will never make another movie like Ed Wood. He tried in like 2014 by with Big Eyes when he teamed with the same um, writing duo. But yeah, I saw the initial uh, trailers for Dark Shadows and just went like, oh, 
he's still doing these kind of movies. Yeah, especially this was the movie right after Alice in Wonderland. Yes. So it was just like yeah. a devastating point. <laughs> like maybe he'll get good again. And then, you know, Frank and Weenie came up and I really like that movie. And then Tim Burton. Yeah, very unfortunate. But um, what about your choices for the double redo, Chris? Uh, so for my good pick, I chose a childhood staple of mine, The Prince of Egypt, the 1998 DreamWorks animated film, um, which is an adaptation of the Book of Exodus. What I was really drawn to it as a kid, like I didn't come from a religious household, and this film isn't necessarily like a secular retelling of that story. It is very much faith-based and really explores these questions of like prophecy and maintaining faith despite uh, despite the trials and tribulations you're sent through. What really brought me to this film and like to hold it on such a pedestal is like it is gorgeously animated. It is one. It is probably the best film that DreamWorks Animation ever made. Like, and again, they'll never make another one because they're on the CGI train. But although the new Puss in Boots movie is good, uh, yeah, it's it gloms onto these like really epic moments of the story of Moses. But it's also like a grounded relationship movie between uh, Moses, who's played by Val Kilmer, and his brother Ramses, who's played by Ralph Fiennes. And it just uses that a jump, jumping off point to be a really interesting exploration of the story that by making it into like a blockbuster movie that's rather than like, you know, a faith-based parable. It's a wonderfully animated film. It's gorgeous looking. Uh, the musical numbers, because, you know, 1998 animated movie had to have musical numbers they're all really good like they stay they uh, hold up very well uh one thing that unfortunately doesn't hold up and well it went viral recently on twitter uh when people were pointing out like here's the prince of egypt voice cast and a lot of white names on there like it's an all it's an all exclusively like, almost like exclusively white cast except for i believe uh except like Danny Glover and someone else on the cast. Um, yeah, so I'm not going to defend that part. And especially when you have someone like Jeff Goldblum and his voice coming out of a character drawn to be an Egyptian slave. The 1998 of it all is unfortunate. But yeah, I think it's a really solid animated epic that I think holds up really well. And Pfeiffer, uh, she plays Moses's wife in the film, uh, Zipporah. And they have a real, like, they have a really great vocal chemistry, her and Kilmer. Uh, it's a really, like, a sweet relationship that's at the center of the movie. Not at the center, but, like, uh, it, on the margins of the movie. And unsurprisingly, uh, she does all her own own singing for the film, and it's great. Uh, um, for my bad film, well, I picked I Am Sam from 2001. So this film, its legacy is summed up in the tropic as a punchline in tropic thunder of uh, robert downey jr warning ben stiller never to go full r word 2008 of it all it's an incredibly mawkish overly sentimental story of sean of sean penn who plays a man with intellectual disability uh sam and him trying to prove to prove to the court that he's able to keep his uh precocious daughter who's uh, played by dakota fanning like he's 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 a fit enough parent uh, for her and it's just incredibly wrong-headed it is understandably forgotten uh and just nothing really works in that film uh michelle pfeiffer maybe kind of works as his uh lawyer who's working pro bono to prove to herself that she has like still has an emotional core despite working through the legal system and being 
gradually uh, estranged from her son as a single parent. And she gives a, I would say, decent performance. Like she's the best thing in this movie when she's not being suffocated by the large swinging performance of Sean Penn. But I feel like she's phoning in from a different movie entirely. Yeah, uh, not a great film. Uh, aged very poorly, as you would expect. Um, and probably the most offensive thing about the movie is that it has a soundtrack exclusively of bad Beatles covers. Yeah, it, I Am Sam is terrible. Yeah, uh, I have seen both of yours. Um, I Prince of Egypt is definitely one that, like, I think I respect it more than necessarily love it. I think I would say of the various attempts both at Disney and at DreamWorks that Katzenberg kind of made to piggyback on like I want to do another Beauty and the Beast where I get an animated movie nominated for best picture kind of deals uh, mm-hmm. this is certainly the best of them I would say it's no Pocahontas um, in that regard like, and I, I think the animation looks gorgeous but I don't know if it's the one I sort of invest in of this kind of version of the story I honestly prefer say like the original Ten Commandments even with all the problematic elements of that movie as well um, you mentioning like white actors playing Egyptian parts, um, but thankfully, you know, after Prince of Egypt, that would never happen again with a big Egyptian epic, right? Right, Ridley Scott, that never happened again, right? No, I don't know what you're talking about. No, no, no. Um, and then I did see I Am Sam. Weirdly, I was a child and dragged to the theater to see that, um, and uh, was not necessarily like invested in it as a child. And yeah, I. I remember feeling just like I didn't like it that much, but I figured it was definitely one of those where it's like, maybe even if I'm older, I'll get it. And it'll make more sense to me. Um, and no, the, I have not revisited it, but the older I get, I'm just like, I don't know if I ever want to like gleam that again, especially with, as you mentioned, such awful Beatles covers. Even as a kid, I recognize just like, these are bad versions of good songs. <laughs> I don't get what this is all about, but yeah, definitely. I think uh, two solid picks for Pfeiffer, but uh, let's go ahead and uh, repeat our titles for everybody out there. Um, in case you want to add them to your watch list or avoid them from your watch list. Uh, my good pick was The Fabulous Baker Boys, and my bad pick was Dark Shadows. My good pick was The Prince of Egypt, and my bad pick was I Am Sam. And uh, we're going to get to the uh, end here and do our picking for next week, so stay tuned for that. But before we do, we have to thank some people, like Chris Oliver for the intro and outro music used on our show. Listen to more of his music at chrisoliver.bandcamp.com. Uh, thanks to Christian Thor Lally for our artwork. Follow him at Night of Water. That's night with a K underscore of underscore water for all of his great stuff on various socials. And thanks, of course, to our supporters on Patreon, patreon.com slash dedbpod, where for just $1 a month, you all get access to uh, bonus podcasts and polls that we do. Um, and you all get to help us sort of decide how the show goes. And also, like I mentioned, listening to the bonus podcast, um, not too long after this episode comes out, uh, you know, before the end of February, we'll be putting out um, our first attempt at an award show, uh, which we are dubbing The Dubs, D-U-B-Z, because uh, we wanted to come up with the dumbest name possible, that if anyone actually received a statue with the thing of the dubs on it, they would throw that statue out immediately. Any, like, massive <laughs> award-winning actors out there. Um, but yeah, it's our sort of version of the Oscars, where we're looking back at the movies of 2022, and, you know, uh, spotlighting some nominees and winners, some of which were nominated by the Oscars, some of which weren't. So if you become a patron for the $1, you get access to listen uh, to Adam and I doing those picks. And that's right, Adam will be coming back out of his hiatus briefly, at least, to uh, go ahead and do that with me. It'll be a lot of fun. But... Uh, of course, I can't end the show without thanking Chris, our lovely guest host. Chris, thank you so much for being on the show. Go ahead and plug yourself. Where can people find you out there on the internet? Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm, I hope the invitation's always open, and I've 
Yeah, thank you so much. It was a great time. Uh, yeah, you can find me on Twitter at CinemaCreep, which is also my letterboxed handle. And you can find some of my writing at explain.ca, FilmCred, uh, Film Pulse. And if you want to hear more of my voice ramble on about things that probably don't matter, uh, you can subscribe to my podcast, uh, Cartoon Night in Canada, where me and my co-host Sylvie explore the wild and wonderful world of Canadian television animation. Yes, I believe. Didn't you just do the big episode about Ed and Nettie recently? We did do that, but unfortunately, that's not our latest episode. Our latest no. one is on the fifth and sixth season of Celebrity Deathmatch, which you want to talk about oh. things that haven't aged well. What are you talking about? <laughs> that seems like it would age so perfectly, <laughs> especially where celebrities never die. It makes so much sense. Oh, of uh, course. But <laughs> right, exactly. Uh, well, for more of uh, us, you can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at DEDBpod. And you can also uh, f- send emails to us uh, at doubleedgedoublebill at gmail.com, all spelled out. Um, and for more of me, you can find me on Twitter and Letterboxes at Not the Who's Tommy. And I also do some writing at both uh, film-cred.com and uh, over at uh, my blog, marianithomas.wordpress.com. And uh, for more of the show, please subscribe to us on various platforms like Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts out there. If you're listening on Talk Film Society, why not listen to all the other great shows that are here on the network? And uh, you can also dig into our archives on our Podbean main feed for like 200 episodes before we even joined TFS. And nothing else, if uh, you can't support us on the Patreon for the $1, it's cool. We get it. Money's tight. The free way to help us out, though, is simply rate, review, or share the show around to give us more visibility but now chris it's time that we do the picking for next week so as we usually do at the end of every episode uh we have two good and two bad picks uh two of which were submitted by adam uh, in this case the bad picks for next week and i have uh, the two good picks for next week and uh, each of those are assigned number between one and ten and uh, the other person on the show, in this case, Chris, will pick number between 1 and 10 for both uh, my choices and Adam's choices for next week's episode. And uh, that'll decide our good and bad features. So, for example, Chris might say, I'm going to pick number 10, and I'll say, okay, that's close to number 8, which is this particular choice. And uh, we'll be doing our picking for next week's episode, which we're doing uh, in honor of Creed 3 coming out, which is actually a Jonathan Major's blockbuster of sorts I'm excited about. Very fascinating to see how that goes. Um, we are doing spin-off films, so very specifically these spin-offs. Not a sequel, not a prequel, but movies that are spun off and follow a sort of side character from our original film. So uh, there'll be a lot of uh, interesting good or bad choices potentially there. So for my two good choices, though, Chris, please pick number between 1 and 10. Ooh, okay. Uh, I'm feeling a f- uh, 7. All right. At... Number six, I had a movie that, you know, very appropriate given uh, what we're tying the spinoff episode to. The, uh, I think, amazing, uh, surprising spinoff of the Rocky franchise, the original 2015 Creed. Yeah, that's a great movie. Yeah, can't wait to talk about that for sure. Though, on the other side of things, I had one um, over at number two that I think doesn't get enough credit as, like, a really fun spinoff, and I think definitely is, like, especially of a surprise great movie as well, just, like, they spun off this one side character who's obviously a big character in other media and did a great job with it. Uh, over at number two, I had the Lego Batman movie. Oh, God, yeah, that is that holds up surprisingly well. I rewatched it recently. That is a delightful, delightful Lego movie. Great movie. But now, for Adam's two bad picks, please, Chris, number between one and ten once again. Give me nine. 
Okay. At number 10, uh, Adam has an interesting one I have not seen. And I guess is technically a spinoff in that it relates to a very early sort of a like 70s, 80s franchise uh, that um, it was kind of like an infamous disaster. Uh, he has 1984's Supergirl. Oh. Oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. You want me to pick again? <laughs> no, no. I'm at least glad we went with that because over at number three, uh, Adam had selected, I think, a much worse movie. That was a very bizarre spinoff for a bizarrely like successful movie uh i think i believe the biggest bomb of a comedy of all time he had evan almighty oh jesus oh yeah you got the uh you're i guess you're lucky it doesn't it might not feel like it right now but you dodged that bullet there i have a, i've seen evan almighty i'm aware uh that there's <laughs> that's a much more painful experience i think than supergirl supergirl at least is like fascinating to some degree so yeah uh, we'll be talking about creed and supergirl next time on the show here uh but Until next time, everybody, you know, just get on your bikes and find yourself a cool rider.